Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hey Molly, my name's Rebecca. I'm calling from Melbourne. I was born in New Zealand. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your intelligence and good humor presenting the podcast. It's been um, incredibly helpful. Uh, I'm usually pretty private about my diagnosis. I got diagnosed maybe 10 years ago and um, kind of forgot about it, weirdly enough. And uh, now I'm really, really working hard in the last few years to kind of understand coming into Act 3 of um, my life turning 40 this year, um, uh, I guess um, trying to understand a bit more deeply. One of the things that is coming up because I'm on this uh, drug trial at the moment for BPD is understanding, I guess, the idea of narration and thinking about how that feeds into memory and identity disturbance and what you call the big uh, empty. Um, And I guess the reason why is because... um, different from dissociation but the idea of kind of like uh not having a clear or um diachromatic understanding of narration anyway just wondering if you had any um thoughts on that and could um help out and thank you so much you're so wonderful and um love you lots bye Hello, everyone. Welcome to Back from the Borderline, the podcast that helps anyone who identifies with the symptoms of BPD overcome their biggest obstacle themselves. I'm your host, Molly, and you know what the drill is. Anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. Now, Rebecca, thank you for your amazing question. I am always amazed that any of you can fit your questions in this one minute and 30 second time frame that I've given you. Just bless your souls, seriously, because I can't say anything within that time frame. Rebecca, it's not every day that I get a question that I'm able to make an entire episode on, but there was no way I could just make this a little section and response. And also, Ironically, we're like connected at the brain because I had already wanted to do an episode all about exactly what you're asking in your voicemail so it could not have come through at a better time. Also, just a side note, I'm very interested to know what trial you are taking part in for BPD, so feel free to email me more details about that because I would love to hear more. I'm always interested to hear about recent research that's going on in the field. So for existing listeners, welcome back to the fold. New listeners, welcome. Today we are going to be talking about narrative therapy and the importance of our inner narrative in our lives. The issue with many current BPD treatments is that they are focused squarely on the individual. So essentially just offering coping skills 
but failing to dive deeper under the hood and get to the systemic components of what we view as a society as quote-unquote disordered behavior. So this leads to many of us who identify with the symptoms of BPD, whether we are diagnosed formally or whether we are just convinced that we have BPD because of what we've read. It leads us to going to therapy, learning skills, whether that may be DBT skills, CBT skills, and the result is often simply being that we are easier for other people to tolerate, but we still have these same deep, painful feelings of shame, chronic feelings of emptiness, or as Rebecca so expertly put, because she's clearly a long-term listener, I call this the big BPD empty, the big empty. Every one of us knows that feeling. I can't tell you how many times I have seen on the BPD subreddit the same question over and over again. I think I've seen it probably nine times in the last two years that I've been part of that subreddit. And the question is always the same. It is, does anyone feel that feeling of just wanting to go home, but you don't know where home is? And it's just this perpetual feeling of longing, of not knowing where home is, but you want to go home and nowhere quite feels like home. And I think that's a really accurate description of the big BPD empty. And it's also just this searching for a home, searching for identity, searching for who we are, that skills can be helpful. And I'm not dogging on DBT skills or any of these therapeutic skills that are so important. I've talked about on the podcast many times before about how I think DBT skills should be taught in school to every child in existence. They're incredibly helpful, but I feel like if we're only learning the skills, we're missing the entire other part, which is getting under the hood. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. And different forms of therapies do a really good job of doing that. It's incredible to be able to afford therapy and have access to a decent therapist, but the reality is for many of my listeners that they can't. So what I'll be doing for you today is providing an in-depth view of narrative therapy and some ways that you can incorporate some of the concepts into your life and you can move from just learning skills to actually transforming the way that you view yourself other people and the way you move through the world the story of you and i think this is the missing piece the thing that many of us are missing in order to help us connect to a sense of identity to really quell these feelings of the big empty this feeling lost of never knowing where home is and i'm hoping that these concepts from narrative therapy and learning about what it is can really open your mind to something different because I really do feel like we get too pigeonholed into just DBT being the only thing that can help quote-unquote people with BPD. There's so many amazing therapeutic modalities that we can explore to help us develop greater meaning with our lives to find some peace within this psychological suffering that we're experiencing. Before we dive into narrative therapy, what it is, and how it's currently being used to help people who identify with BPD, I want to talk about an incredibly important concept 
in psychological development, and that's called agency. Individuals who identify with BPD traits often struggle with feeling like we don't have a sense of agency over our lives. And what is agency? And agency is known as our sense of ourselves as being empowered or capable of having some degree of influence over our lives and our circumstances. And when we lack a sense of agency, when we feel like life is just happening to us and we have no control over what happens to us, it's no surprise that we feel miserable. Now, if you go to see a therapist, a psychotherapist, a social worker, any kind of therapist who practices any type of therapeutic modality, I guarantee you they've learned about agency. And it's a goal of most therapeutic treatments is helping someone who comes and sits in the therapy chair or the social worker's chair and helping them develop a sense of agency, a sense of feeling like they have control in their lives. Many people end up in the chairs of therapists, social workers, and psychologists, psychiatrists, you name it, anyone in mental health, someone who comes in to seek mental health care is because we feel like we don't have any control over our lives in some kind of capacity. Now I'm going to read a short excerpt from a research paper from 2005 that I found. Oh yeah, we get nerdy on this podcast. Fun, very mini sidebar. I found this tool that allowed me to search Reddit for any terms. So of course I wanted to search Reddit for what people were saying about the podcast. And one of the first things that popped up was someone typed, hey, you should check out this podcast called Back from the Borderline. This super nerd Molly does a ton of research and talks about BPD and it's really helpful. And I have to say, I was so proud to be referred to as a super nerd because I am a self-proclaimed and very proud nerd. So I digress. Let's share this piece of this paper that I found about agency and just describing the importance of agency and how a lack of agency impacts people who identify with BPD. So, and this is very academic research, so they speak in very medicalized terms, which as you know, I don't necessarily agree with medicalizing and pathologizing the human personality and experience, but let's read what they have to say nonetheless. Bradley and Weston in 2005 write that, quote, the experience of self as agentic, and agentic meaning someone having a good, strong sense of agency, is often disrupted in borderline personality by a pattern in which impulses are acted upon so immediately that the self is not experienced as the author of the act. In other words, the individual with BPD is incapable of regarding themselves as the initiator of their experiences. He or she is merely along for the ride, subject to the whims of external forces. 
the portrayal of the protagonist in one's life story is at the heart of narrative identity, and the theme of agency has been referred to as one of the two subordinate themes in life narratives. So I want to take a pause in this excerpt because I want to repeat part of it that I think is incredibly important for us to highlight. The experience of self as agentic or having agency or control over their lives is often disrupted in borderline personality by a pattern in which impulses are acted upon so immediately that the self is not experienced as the author of the act. So what does this mean? And why did I highlight this to read out to you? It means that when we identify with symptoms of BPD, we struggle to find a sense of identity or know who we are because we don't ever feel like we are the ones controlling our actions. It feels like we've been hijacked or like we're just merely along for the ride as this research paper states. This is precisely why I place so much emphasis on as someone who identifies with BPD, learning to put some space between your big feelings and your reactions because it is in the space between the feeling and our reaction that we find our what? Our agency, our sense of feeling like we're in control. For so long in my life, I felt like I had no control over my actions or reactions. I felt like my life was just this constant drama. I looked at people who had relatively peaceful lives and were relatively peaceful and calm and just satisfied all the time. And I thought, what the hell must that be like? I don't understand what that's like. And I felt like I had no way to make a peaceful life for myself. I just thought that I was maybe had bad luck or I was some kind of like weird magnet for drama, but we'll learn in this episode that it's all about the narrative and it's all about developing a stronger sense of agency. Back when my BPD symptoms or the symptoms of what is known as borderline personality disorder had their strongest grasp on me, I guarantee you I would have sat down in a therapist's chair and adamantly declared that I had no control over my life and things just happened to me. And I ask you now as you're listening to this, do you feel like you have no control over your life? Do you feel like your life is just one drama, one broken relationship, one nightmare situation after the other and you can't really think about the last time that you had months in a row of peace or that you're making impulsive decisions that blow up in your face and you feel like you're looking back with cringe and shame spirals of texts that you've sent and things that you've done and you're just like, how did I get here? Who even am I? Do you look in your closet and see a bunch of clothes that like 10 different people with 10 different personalities would wear? Have you changed your hair color 25 times in the last five years and it's falling out of your head? (laughs) No, just me. 
but this is what happens when we relinquish any agency and we just kind of let life throw us around, let our our emotions toss us around. But there is a way of regaining a sense of agency and it's the key, the missing piece I am convinced at helping us experience a reduction in these symptoms that we identify so closely with and more importantly, experiencing a life that works for you that is experienced as peaceful and drama-free. And I'll read one last thing from this research paper before we dive into the basis of narrative therapy and some techniques that we can use from it to help us start developing a greater sense of agency over our lives. So from this same research paper, it says, quote, BPD life stories portray a protagonist. And if you know what a protagonist is, a protagonist is like the main character of the story. So in Harry Potter, Harry Potter would be the protagonist. In Snow White, Snow White is the protagonist. And the evil witch is the antagonist. So the paper says, BPD life stories portray a protagonist who is batted around at the whims of his or her circumstances, unable to influence life's direction, aka low agency. This disempowered protagonist has trouble fulfilling his or her deep wishes for connection, and the stories themselves lack a strong sense of narrative coherence. The reader or listener of this person's story is often not oriented to new episodes as the story unfolds. The sequencing of events may be hard to discern. Affect is both intense and at times notably lacking at others, leaving the listener or reader unclear as to which elements are the most important. And rarely does the narrator reflect on the personal significance of a given episode or relate it to his or her broader sense of self. With an identity distinguished by this constellation of themes, it is no wonder that individuals with features of BPD struggle. So what do these personal narratives of people with features of BPD look like? Certainly, they recount the trials and tribulations of the difficult lives they've led, lives punctuated with extreme relationship dysfunction, repeated failures, and sometimes suicide attempts. For example, towards the end of his life story, one participant in our studies with features of BPD said this, and this is a quote from one of the participants in the study who ended up passing away. There's nothing else to do. I mean, my family's starting to die off. Since the new millennium, I've lost two brothers and a sister and a couple brother-in-laws and a sister-in-law. And it's just like my family's just disappearing. So I figure maybe it's time for me to check out, you know, before I see anybody else in my life die. I don't know. We'll see what happens. That's really heavy. And my heart goes out to this research participant who ended up, from what it seems like in the study, taking his own life. And it's a really tough reality that we must face is that life contains a lot of suffering and that no one, no matter how privileged or underprivileged we are, is immune to the realities of life, that we will lose people close to us. And it hurts my heart even to say that because it makes me think of losing people close to me. And many of us just don't want to face that. 
But what this paper is articulating here, particularly in the first passage that we read here, is about the life stories told of BPD portrays a protagonist who's batted around at the whims of his or her circumstances, who is unable to influence the direction of their life, and how they are also unable to reflect on the significance of certain things that happen to them, learn from them, and then choose a different reaction moving forward. When I read that, that was a big moment for me reading that because some things that I read create those aha moments. And that did for me because what I realized is I experienced so much more suffering, particularly in my twenties than I needed to, because I didn't learn from my mistakes. I kept doing the same things over and over, dating the same people, refusing to look at myself and the effects that my behavior and my beliefs and my reactions and my choices had on my reality. I didn't want to face any of that. And so instead of being the hero of my own journey, my own story, as we've talked about so often on this podcast and why narrative therapy is something that, as you can tell, if you're a long-term listener is close to my heart, that's what it's about. We are the hero of our own journey. This isn't to be confused with main character syndrome, which means that we think we're the center of the universe. It's a more empowered main character syndrome. It is how am I the head and the leader of my life? And how can I take accountability for my feelings, my reactions, and my actions and create a better story for myself? What can I do? What control can I have? How can I learn from my mistakes and choose to act differently. Rather than letting life throw me around, how can I become the captain of my life's ship? The creator of narrative therapy was named Michael White. He was an Australian social worker, and along with his colleague David Epstein, who is originally from New Zealand, And I'd like to just take an appreciative sidebar here because Rebecca, who submitted this week's question, said that she was born in New Zealand but living in Australia. And it makes me think if maybe the idea of narration and narrative therapy is a little bit more popular and prominent on that side of the world than here in the U.S., I'd be very interested to know. But also, Rebecca, kind of cool, right? (laughs) These two social workers, Michael White and David Epstein, drew upon this philosophical concept of internalized personal discourses and decided to create a form of therapy around it called narrative therapy. And narrative therapy emphasizes externalizing our problems and doing something called reauthoring our own stories, which we'll talk a little bit about later. So how is narrative therapy effectively and clinically used in the treatment of what is known as BPD? Narrative therapy, if you were to work with a narrative therapist, it's likely that they would begin by helping you view the problem in your life, not as BPD or your symptoms or your inappropriate behaviors, but as your retelling of the problem 
which is centered around likely what they would perceive as an internalized negative identity. It involves something called storifying, like making things into a story, storifying events in your life and other surface phenomena into alternative storylines to help you more richly describe the alternate story in your life. And the goal of narrative therapy, if you were to work with a narrative therapist to tackle symptoms of BPD, would not be to reduce your symptoms or increase your emotion regulation skills, which is so commonly the end game of therapeutic modalities like DBT, but instead it would be to assist you in generating and developing narratives that feel truer and more meaningful to you than the problem-focused account of your life. In narrative therapy, the social worker or therapist's task is to help you reauthor your life story. And your role as the client would shift from just being the therapeutic subject or like the disordered or broken person to the creator of your life story. And because many people formally diagnosed with BPD have this internalized, dominant, what's known as deficit-based narrative of the diagnosis, exploring other possibilities beyond the problem-saturated narrative becomes important in narrative therapy. So obviously, believing that your personality is disordered, that you are broken, that you have a broken brain, it isn't going to be gelling with narrative therapy. Externalizing practices are a primary practice of narrative therapy. So let's talk a little bit about how a narrative therapist would help you externalize the problem. So if we hold any negative beliefs about ourselves, it's common to think that we are the problem rather than simply that we have a problem. So narrative therapy's exercise is trying to help us understand that difference. When something is external to us, it's much harder and often impossible to be defined by that problem. When we externalize something, it really helps us create distance between ourself, our true self, and our problems, or our maybe quote-unquote disordered behaviors. And this is an essential part of narrative therapy and letting go of what they see as problematic narratives. So say, for example, your family always told you that you were irresponsible and you were known as the irresponsible one in your family. That might stick with you for a long time. Or other words, like you're a slut, you're a liar, you are ugly, you are useless, you're lazy, whatever you were told growing up. Even if it was just a bully that it only said it a couple times, For example, I was told that I had like a flat chest for a long time growing up by the same boy at school. And I just internalized that as being a horrible thing. Now I grew up and met a lot of girlfriends that I had that have like 
really large breasts and they found it to be really painful on their back. And eventually I got breast implants and I realized, oh my God, having larger boobs is actually really painful on my back. And I ended up getting my breast implants removed. But for so long, I believed there was something wrong with me because I had a flat chest. Now with this different narrative, I can think, okay, I can lay on my stomach. I don't have back pain, right? That's just an example. But think about the way that you've been labeled by people in your life. Let's go back to this example of having family members, maybe potentially telling you that you're the irresponsible one. So now every time you go to make a big decision, maybe you don't trust yourself because this narrative of you being irresponsible or dumb or incapable of making big decisions, whatever that may be, it's become a dominant problematic story that's stopping you from making sound, healthy decisions from yourself and stopping you from seeing who you truly are and what you're truly capable of. If you're operating through this unhealthy framework and believing this, believing this narrative that you are forever whatever your family labeled you as, every action you make here in the present as an adult, you're basing those actions about and on who you were in the past, not who you are becoming now or what you value now. And so therefore you are fixed in this past version of yourself that someone else created. You didn't even create it for yourself. So externalizing this concept of externalization in narrative therapy is key because it allows you to see that although You may have been irresponsible in the past. You won't forever be an irresponsible person. It's important to keep in mind when we're thinking about externalization that this isn't about removing blame from our mistakes or not being accountable for things that we may have done wrong or people that we've hurt along the way. Narrative therapy is actually aimed to strengthen accountability Because through externalizing our problems, we begin to believe that we're capable of acting differently when it's not who we are, but rather something that we've done. It's much easier to deal with something when we don't feel like it's part of who we are. Whether or not we like to admit it, most of us blow our problems way out of proportion So instead of recognizing things that happen as fleeting moments, mistakes, or complications, we let these things in our lives that so often happen to so many other people. For example, breakups. Breakups happen every single day. But if you would have told 27-year-old Molly who was laying on her bed suicidal because the guy she'd been dating for three months broke up with her, this, she would have not believed you for a second. (laughs) But the fact of the matter remains is that breakups happen every day. People pass away. People lose their jobs. Things are going to happen that are going to cause suffering in our lives and every single person alive on this earth. That's part of the contract of being human. 
But the problem is, is that we let these things control and define who we are. And that's what causes these negative spirals. We all have a tendency to over-identify ourselves and others with the problems in our lives. And this can take many different forms. So for example, I'm useless. It's the BPD. I just have an addictive personality. I've got low self-esteem. She's codependent. He's just a depressed person. So those are a few examples of over-identifying ourselves with our problems. So externalizing the problem helps us come to see that we are not the problem. The problem is the problem. And we can use externalization to help us separate ourselves from problems we're facing and ultimately to help us renegotiate our relationship with those problems. So at its core, externalizing involves using language that helps to personify our problem. So for example, in response to the statement, I'm useless, a narrative therapist, if you were to tell them I'm useless, they may respond with something like, am I right in thinking that the problem tries to tell you about the type of person you are? How does your problem try to convince you that you're useless? Or they might ask something like, this useless feeling, when does it visit you? Are there times when it's more or less likely for the uselessness to come around? So if you are trying to practice externalizing on your own, as many of my listeners may do listening to this podcast, because you may not have access to a qualified narrative therapist, you can practice some of these techniques in your life. So the key is when in doubt, fall back on the words it and the when you're thinking about your problems. So for example, instead of how do you feel about that? A narrative therapist might use the word it asking something like, how does it have you feeling? Likewise, placing the word the before the name of the problem can help you separate the problem from yourself. So worry, for example, becomes the worry you're having. Despair becomes the despair. So this technique is obviously going to take some practice, but learning to see your problem as separate from who you are can really bring tremendous relief. And as I'm recording this now, I'm going, we've kind of done this for my long-term listeners when we talk about the empty, the big empty. Like, when do you feel the big empty? When does it come around? Are there times when you feel it more than others? This sense of needing to come home. Or when does the anger feel most prevalent in your life? Are there times when you feel the anger more often? A lot of these negative reactions that we talk about already, this I'm useless, I'm disordered, I'm broken, there's no hope, I'm incapable of love, I'll never find a relationship. These are rooted in our negative thinking patterns. And these negative thinking patterns, also known as 
cognitive distortions in psychology. These cognitive distortions play a huge role in amplifying our problems. So imagine this scenario. Maybe you have been preparing for a job interview for an entire week and you've prepared so much, you go in completely ready, but then in the middle of the interview, you're asked a super basic question, one that you have prepared over and over and over for, and you just go blank. And it's just for a couple of seconds. And then the rest of the interview goes perfectly fine. You kill it, you nail it. But when you finish the interview, you go out to your car and all you can think about is that time when you went blank and you just think, I am useless. I can never do anything right. You're thinking about this nonstop. I'm sure you can relate to this in one way or another. So this is a cognitive distortion called all or nothing thinking. And we are all familiar with this. Anyone who identifies with the symptoms of BPD, this cognitive distortion, all or nothing thinking is also called splitting. And this is where we see everything as either black or white, good or bad. Your performance in the interview was short of absolutely perfect. So you call yourself useless, a complete failure. Instead of beating yourself up about a tiny little mistake that any human would make, and perhaps the entire team of people that interviewed you maybe wouldn't even give a second thought to, you could have focused on everything you did well in the interview while acknowledging that humans make mistakes and there was just a little mishap that could have gone better. That is actually a more accurate depiction. And what I often find too is if a friend of yours told you the exact same story while telling you, I'm useless, I'm a total failure, it's very likely that you would say, but the rest of the interview went great. I'm sure that the people interviewing you are not going to expect you to be a perfect robot who doesn't make any mistakes. And even if they were, you don't want to work for a company like that anyway. You would likely give a really good friend of yours that advice. And then the people who identify with BPD like me, I always give my friends that kind of advice. And then I somehow expect perfection out of myself and I beat myself up and tell myself these extreme stories when it's me in the driver's seat. And I'm not sure if you can relate to that. So in this story of the interview, if you would have taken that route of giving yourself the advice that you would give a friend saying, hey, people make mistakes, everything else in the interview went great. Let's just see how it, how it pans out rather than like labeling yourself a complete failure you would leave that situation feeling a lot better about yourself. But many of us are guilty in engaging in these splitting behaviors and not just people who identify with BPD. So there are some other common distortions that you should be aware of. And I want you, as I'm talking about these, to really be reflective and think about how often you're doing these things what really strikes me when I am learning about these different types of cognitive distortions is how often I'm doing them without even being conscious of it. 
So it really takes becoming a lot more self-aware in your life. And if you start tuning in to the way that you tell yourself the story of your own life, and if you start really working on externalizing, you're going to see how often these different cognitive distortions are popping up in your life and making things seem so much more extreme that they actually are in reality. So one of these types of cognitive distortions is called mind reading. So the definition of mind reading as a cognitive distortion is basically that you decide that someone is reacting negatively to you, even though you have no valid reason for doing so and you actually have no idea what they're thinking. So for example, you maybe haven't heard from your friend in a while and you start to wonder why. So instead of looking more realistically at things, you immediately decide that your friend is mad or upset or hates you because of the fight that you got into last month. You're just making up a story about it. And maybe you go down a huge spiral, freak out, send them two long paragraphs, and then they come back to you very confused and say, hey, sorry, I just had my phone off for a few hours because I was studying or something. And then you feel like a complete ass. (laughs) I say that because I have done things like this so much. That is the cognitive distortion of mind reading. Another one is fortune telling. So fortune telling as a cognitive distortion is you anticipating that things are going to work out for the worst and you're 100% convinced that your prediction is the fact. So an example of fortune telling is maybe a couple of weeks ago you agreed to go on a blind date, but now you're regretting it And you insist to your friend that you need to cancel because you just know it won't go well. You have no idea of knowing that it will actually go poorly, right? Labeling is another cognitive distortion. So labeling is instead of understanding and explaining a mistake as a mere mistake, you just attach a negative label to yourself or others. So for example, After a long, busy day at work, you finally have time to go to the grocery store. And maybe before you left for work that morning, you told your partner that you would pick up something. And then you get back home, kick off your shoes, and you're ready to just like binge your favorite show. And they ask, did you remember to get that? And you think, I'm such an idiot. I'm a horrible partner. I'm a horrible person, right? That is labeling. You are not a horrible person or an idiot or the most useful, forgetful person in the world. You are just a person who made one mistake. So the first step of externalizing our problems and changing these cognitive distortions and negative thought patterns is acknowledging that you have them in the first place and catching yourself when you're doing them. So this week, my challenge for you is to really try and write out these cognitive distortions, mind reading, fortune telling, labeling, when are you doing them, and try to just be more aware when you're doing them. And when you do one of them, which you inevitably will, 
maybe multiple times a day you'll be doing these, splitting all of these different things. Just say, whoop, I'm noticing that I am doing one of these cognitive distortions. How can I externalize the problem? How can I not make this about me having a core character flaw and externalize it and just realize it is not part of me or who I am. It's just a thing that's happening. So once you've externalized the issue, you can move to deconstructing its parts. And that's when we really start to understand why we act the way we do. If we've externalized our irresponsibility issue, for example, and determined that it's not who we are, we can really start to examine it. We can start to deconstruct what it looks like when we're acting irresponsibly or impulsively or clingy or codependent. This is where we get into the specifics of our problems. This is when we start to realize that maybe we don't take initiative on a project or we procrastinate because we're scared we won't be able to do it well because we believe that we are irresponsible. We believe these incorrect inner narratives. And underneath that, we might discover that our irresponsibility might be a fear of failure rather than some sense of laziness. Then at that point, we can work on the smaller tasks to help ourselves become more prepared for things in the future. What I've discovered about myself is that underneath a lot of my more disruptive behaviors of the past was a sense of fear. And I encourage you to, when you are able to externalize the problem, start doing this, deconstruct your issues. And after you deconstruct an issue like this into its different parts, you can start to look for alternative solutions. So if we're carrying on with this theme of, or belief of, thinking we act irresponsibly, or maybe we come off as lazy when really we're just terrified of failing, we can begin to ask ourselves questions like, what would happen if I didn't fail? What would happen if I worked extra hard on this project and actually got the promotion at work? When we envision new solutions, it changes the story inside of you that says you'll fail. Instead, what if you asked yourself, what if it was impossible for me to fail? How would I act then? And the idea here is that we'll not always get 100% success because that again is just not human. But the idea here is to start seeing our old situations in new ways because in that way, we start to think more creatively. It's impossible to not think more creatively when we look at things in a new way. So this will help us start dealing with problems that come up or habits that are ingrained in us in a different way. I'd like to finish off by reading an excerpt from a speech given by Tiffany Sostar. 
They describe themselves as a narrative therapist, community organizer, editor, writer, workshop facilitator, and tarot reader. In other words, right up my alley. (laughs) And I think that this speech made by Tiffany rounds out really beautifully what we're talking about here. And it really just ties it all together into a beautiful narrative, if you will. See what I did there? (laughs) God, my dad jokes are really bad sometimes. But really though, this really ties the narrative of this episode together and it helps you connect the missing pieces. And also what it does is it just gives me so much freaking hope for the future to know that there are therapists like Tiffany out there helping people who identify with BPD. So let's go ahead and read what Tiffany writes. I'm going to start a little bit into the speech where I think it's more focused around the topic of narrative therapy and how it can help those of us who identify with BPD. Rebecca Lester in her paper, Lessons from the Borderline, writes, Most people diagnosed with BPD grew up in situations where their very existence as a person with independent thoughts and feelings was invalidated. Sometimes this entailed chronic abuse, either physical or sexual, Sometimes it was more of a grinding parental indifference. I just want to pause and appreciate that. Grinding parental indifference. People diagnosed with BPD overwhelmingly experienced their early lives as involving constant messages that they do not and should not fully exist. What even is a personality disorder? So, Borderline personality disorder, like many personality disorders, is a contested and controversial term and diagnosis. Heads up for some stigmatizing and pathologizing language in this next session. I want to give you a bit of context for the social location of BPD and for my own positioning here. I have never received a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Although there are many BPD characteristics that I do strongly identify with, and I share an experience of trauma that many BPD folks might recognize, I do not feel a strong attachment to the label. In my own life, I'm comfortable recognizing certain shared experiences without claiming a shared identity. In my own work, I do not diagnose the community members who consult with me for narrative therapy, but I do respect and work with the diagnoses that people bring into our sessions. There are lots of reasons for this, but one important one for locating myself within this work is that as a narrative therapist, I am interested in externalizing problems, meaning locating the problem outside of the person I'm consulting with. I think that many contemporary ways of speaking about borderline personality disorder invite us to view BPD as a set of traits inherent to an individual. BPD is often described as a volatility that can make people dangerous an instability, a lack of cohesive identity. All of these ways of speaking about BPD locate it within the person rather than within their context. I think that this obscures the many ways in which folks have been identified with BPD respond to the problems in their lives. These ways of speaking, of telling a story about BPD can end up having the consequence of giving BPD more agency than the very person in front of us. And I think that is the problem. I also think it's a problem that can arise even when we're not being malicious or trying to be stigmatizing. You can't help it 
it's the BPD, is a framing that invites neither accountability nor dignity or agency, even though it appears to be a compassionate approach. Instead, I'm interested in how people respond when BPD shows up in their lives. I'm interested in learning when this problem first showed up, what it wants, and how people have responded to it. What are they valuing when they pick up a DBT workbook and start developing their strategies for emotional regulation? What are they hoping for when they continue to show up in relationships despite the BPD voice telling them to bail? Who taught them that they could respond? Who in their lives knows what they cherish and would not be surprised to learn that they're taking actions to respond to the problem in their lives? Rebecca Lester continues to write in her paper, quote, I understand BPD somewhat differently than my clinical colleagues who see it as a dysfunction of personality and my academic colleagues who see it as a mechanism of social regulation. In my view, BPD does not reside within the individual person. A person stranded alone on a desert cannot have BPD, nor does it reside within a diagnostic taxa. If we eliminated BPD from the DSM, people would still struggle with the cluster of issues captured in the diagnosis. Rather, BPD resides, and only resides, in relationship. BPD is a disorder of relationship, not of personality. And it is only a disorder because it extends an entirely adaptive skill set into contexts where those skills are less adaptive and may cause a great deal of difficulty. Yet, Due to the context in which the skills were developed, the person has a great deal of trouble amending them. Since BPD resides in relationship, BPD can also be attuned through relationship. It's not a life sentence, and it is not even necessarily problematic if managed constructively. So Tiffany goes on to say in her speech, One of the foundational beliefs of narrative therapy is that the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem, and the solution is rarely individual. I think that this is an important framing to bring to discussions of BPD. So that's where I stand. So how about the discourse around BPD? In her fantasy book, Borderline, Author Michelle Baker, who identifies as BPD herself and has written a badass BPD heroine for the novel, writes, quote, Sometimes the first thing people learn about borderlines is that you can't trust them, and there's not always much learning after that. That's why it's so important to think critically about the stories we're telling about BPD and about people who are identified to BPD, to keep learning, to interrogate what we've been taught or told about what it means to live with BPD experiences. Does the story leave room for the dignity and agency of the person being described or discussed? Does it position the person as the expert in their own experience? Who does this story serve, and what are the potential outcomes of this story? We need to ask these questions anytime we read an article, a post, a book, a webpage, What and who is being supported in this narrative? What and who is being diminished? Bring these questions with you anytime you engage with writing or speaking about BPD or anything else. BPD is recognized as one of 10 personality disorders in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition. 
In the ICD-10, the manual used by the World Health Organization, this diagnosis is named, quote, emotionally unstable personality disorder. The Mayo Clinic defines a personality disorder as a type of mental disorder in which you have a rigid and unhealthy pattern of thinking, functioning, and behaving. A person with a personality disorder has trouble perceiving and relating to situations and people. This causes significant problems and limitations in relationships, social activities, work, and school. So Tiffany goes on to say, we're going to come back to this idea of trouble perceiving and relating to situations and people because in fact, many participants in our BPD superpowers group identified themselves as being uniquely and specifically skilled in observing their environments, relationships, and selves, and in building community and empathizing and connecting with other people. Although it's true that many folks experience BPD as getting in the way of their relationships at times, this does not mean that they cannot perceive and understand what is happening around them. This framing, this story of what a personality disorder is, can be weaponized against a person who is identified with BPD. It can actually leave them more vulnerable to abuse because it frames them and gives the narrative as somehow that they are inherently and perpetually incapable of accurate perception. Even if this is not what a clinician might mean when they use this language, this is what you get from a quick Google search. Very little discussion of the social contexts within which these so-called, quote, personality disorders arise, and almost nothing that describes the skillful and intentional ways in which people respond to these problems, Gaslighting refers to actions that cause someone to question their own memory, perception, or sanity. Gaslighting can happen intentionally, lying about, denying, or misrepresenting what has happened. But it can also happen unintentionally, when we treat someone's perception as unreliable, when we default to the idea that they are lying or mistaken, when we refuse to position them as the experts in their own experiences, The discourse of personality disorders as meaning that a person has trouble perceiving situations can create a context within which a person who identifies with BPD is being constantly and often unintentionally and non-maliciously, but still harmfully gaslit. It can leave people who are identified with BPD in the position of not being believed if they are subjected to abuse. It's not a helpful framing. As an alternative framing, it might be helpful to ask ourselves what is influencing how we are witnessing the people in our lives who are identified with BPD. Are we kind witnesses to their experiences? Are we holding space for them to share their insider knowledge into what they need, what they're experiencing, and what is helpful for them? And on the topic of being unhelpful, here is what Wikipedia has to say about BPD. BPD is characterized by the following signs and symptoms, markedly disturbed sense of identity, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, splitting, impulsivity, intense or uncontrollable reactions that often seem disproportionate to the event, unstable interpersonal relationships, self-damaging behavior, distorted self-image, dissociation, frequently accompanied by depression, anxiety, substance abuse, or rage. The most distinguishing symptoms of BPD are marked sensitivity to rejection or criticism, intense fear of possible abandonment. Overall, the features of BPD 
include unusually intense sensitivity in relationships with others, difficulty regulating emotions, and impulsivity. Other symptoms include feeling unsure of one's personal identity, morals, and values, having paranoid thoughts when feeling stressed, depersonalization, and in moderate to severe cases, stress-induced breaks with reality or psychotic episodes. So Tiffany goes on to say, This wiki page also includes the melon subtypes, which include discouraged borderline, petulant borderline, impulsive borderline, and self-destructive borderline. So that's Wikipedia, which is one of the first places that many folks look when they receive a diagnosis of BPD or when they're trusted with a disclosure from a friend or family member when they hear about someone having BPD. So if you are here as a friend, family member, or someone in community with folks who are identified with BPD, imagine what it might feel like to read that about yourself and to have that be the dominant narrative of who you are. Imagine what it might feel like to know that people around you are reading this about you and maybe talking about you and people like you in these terms. If you are here as a person who identifies with BPD, Know that I and every one of the people involved in this project and many people beyond this group see you for more than these degrading and diminishing descriptors. We recognize your superpowers. We recognize your resilience. In one of the group discussions, a participant said, every single person with BPD who is still here with us and those that aren't still with us, I think that we absolutely deserve to be acknowledged and that our hard work should be acknowledged, not tokenized or pedestalized, but having that work acknowledged and witnessed. I agree. That made me very emotional. And I agree with Rebecca Lester when she writes, quote, through challenging embedded bias, honoring the testimonies of individuals, questioning our own motivations and renewing a commitment to reduce injustice, silencing, and suffering, Our intellectual, clinical, and human potentialities are being stretched, and if we're fortunate, we'll continue to grow. What I find most compelling about my clients with, quote, borderline symptoms is that they're still struggling to exist despite the deep conviction that they do not deserve to do so, and they're still struggling to connect with others despite being told again and again that they're manipulative and controlling and difficult. Far from being inauthentic then, These individuals are reaching out to the world in the most honest, direct, and vulnerable ways they possibly can, all while bracing for the invalidation and hostility that they know is likely to follow. This is making me cry. They cannot help but reach for connection and to hold out faith, however dim, that they will find it. I find this incredibly inspiring. It puts front and center the impulse for growth and health that I believe exists in all of us no matter how encrusted with despair, dysfunction, hopelessness, or defeat. I learn from these clients every single day. Their struggles and their resilience humble me. They remind me that intellectual critique is but one piece of a much larger puzzle, and they have experiences that deserve to be heard and validated, even when, perhaps especially when, they challenge our interpretations. They push me to be a better scholar, a better clinician, and I hope in the end, a better human being. So I hope that you got as much from hearing that as I did. I got extremely emotional reading that out because 
it shows the power of telling ourselves a different narrative of externalizing our problems. You are not the problem. You are not broken. You have the power to choose a new narrative, choose a new story. You have the power to put some space between these amazing big feelings that you have. Question them. Make sure that you're seeing reality for what it is. Decide how you want to react and then act. It's that space between that you find out who you really are. It's likely that you've struggled with feelings of emptiness and this lack of clarity around your identity because you've never given yourself a chance to choose your reactions, your actions, your decisions. You've always just been thrown around by life and you can change that. There are certain things in life that we cannot change and I'm not being naive to that. This isn't like a toxic positivity psychology type podcast where I deny the very real systemic injustices in the world and racism and sexism and all of these things that so many of the most vulnerable among us are up against but there are certain things we can change and we can try our best to change the narrative and ask ourselves what is the story you've been telling yourself about who you are? What are the cognitive distortions that are on a constant loop in your mind that make it impossible for you to break free from some of these narratives that were likely chosen for you as a young child by maybe your caregivers or your peers and you've adopted them as your own? It's no wonder why You would be struggling with feelings of emptiness or not wanting to be here or feeling like what's the point or struggling to find yourself in a relationship that feels right or friendships that feel right because you've never given yourself time to find out who you truly are or you're trying to live up to a story that was given to you. It's time for you to become the hero of your own story of your own narrative. And if you are privileged enough to have access to therapy and this has resonated with you, I highly recommend that you seek out a therapist who has experience in narrative therapy techniques. And for those of you who are not able to access therapy, I hope that this episode was helpful for you. And there are so many things that you can do that are freely accessible through the magic of the internet, you can look up techniques. So I highly recommend that you go on our beautiful little google.com and look up narrative therapy techniques and exercises, throw it into YouTube, throw it into your podcast app. And I'm sure there are tons of other episodes that'll teach you so much more about narrative therapy. But for now, I hope what I've shared with you today has been helpful If you would like to hear your voice on the podcast, you can send me a voicemail by going to backfromtheborderline.com and clicking the little microphone icon, just like our friend Rebecca did. So thank you to Rebecca for sharing your question and inspiring this amazing episode. 
And also, if you would like to support the podcast, you can do that by becoming a premium subscriber. And over on the premium version of the podcast, I am walking my premium subs through the hero's journey. Episode by episode, I am releasing week by week these incredible guided visualizations that help you really uncover the root of some of the things that you're struggling with. And the hero's journey visualizations and techniques have been one of the game changers in my own recovery. So if you'd like to unlock access to those episodes, you can also do that by going to backfromtheborderline.com and clicking unlock premium access. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope you have an amazing week and don't forget It can't stop at listening to the podcast. Take what you've learned today and apply it in your own life. Sending you all my love, big hugs, and I'll see you right back here again next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.